Hi, this is Ibarri and X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. With the release of the film Blow Up in 1966, every person with a camera wanted to be a fashion photographer like David Bailey. In the 70s and 80s, the dream for many was to be the adventurous and charismatic photojournalist traveling around all the hot spots in the world. Today, our fixation is on celebrities and the photographers who sometimes become famous themselves for photographing them. Michael Greco has produced work in all these genres, as well as producing and directing movies. He's known not only for his iconic imagery, but also his mastery of light and the ability to solicit the unexpected from his subjects. As I sat down to talk to him, one of the first questions I wanted to ask him was about his youth and whether he was born with the gift of gab or whether the camera was the means by which he overcame awkwardness and insecurity. I, I mean, for me, it was like it was neither. I, I have actually used, um, I, I actually used to be a little, um, um, you know, just rough. Like I, I, I didn't grow up with, in a very sophisticated family and very sort of working class Italian. Even though we grew up in a in a middle class uh, and and eventually a little bit of an upper middle class lifestyle, uh, they were still, my parents were still sort of working class Italians. Grew up in the city, you know, and and so no, this has been part of my learning experience, like refining myself, getting better at being comfortable with people. Um, learning to communicate has been part of my journey. So no, I was not the smooth talking, you know, celebrity portrait photographer or advertising photographer handling 20 clients on the set. Now I love it. I love it as both a challenge and I love it as both sort of negotiation and making it work and all that other stuff. But, but it wasn't me. It's been part of my learning experience. Oh, that's really interesting to hear because sometimes it's, I've met some people who just seem to have that, that personality and, and I wonder whether it's something that's just natural to them or whether they've developed. So it's kind of interesting to hear that perspective from you. That's great. You started as a photojournalist and that's a completely different way of working. You still have to interact with people and you still have to beat the deadlines. But how did that, that life sort of inform what we were just talking about with your ability to interact and solicit and collaborate with, with people? Well, I mean, that, it was really an interesting thing because I, I, in high school, I picked up the camera at 13, summer camp, learned to print, uh, le- you know, learned to print with chemicals and on fiber paper and RC paper was just invented back then. And, and I, I mean, I learned to print and got into photography that way and I, and I would shoot counselors. And, but then I, then I was on a for, sort of fine art track. I went to uh, State University of New York. SUNY Purchase, which was a very big art school that was down the street from me when I was in high school. And I'd studied with fine artists, Gail Russell, and um, some other fine art photographers, and thought that was my track. And then I got to college and took a photojournalism class and was like, wow, this is, this is really exciting. Like, it, it was more the lifestyle and what I would get to see 
than anything else. Again, I, I grew up in this very like overprotective old world Italian sort of family and being a photojournalist gave me the way to, to see the world. I was going to Boston university. I lived in Boston. I was on, I was worked on the, uh, the state house every day. I shot with, uh, you know, I was on a first name basis with governor Dukakis at the time. I, in fact, I watched two terms of governor Dukakis. There was a Republican governor in between. And I, I just, it just exposed the world to me. But it, what it really taught me is that it wasn't the type of photography I wanted to do. I did it for a while. But it, it really, what it did was just open up a world of things that I wouldn't have been exposed to. But what I really got out of it is I loved shooting people. I loved meeting people. I loved hearing about the scientific achievements they've done or how they made their businesses successful or how they... Uh, created something or how they created their art. And I, and I really I got out of that, that I wanted to shoot people. But, but I realized I didn't want to do it in a photojournalistic way. I, I sort of would create these visual scenarios in my head that, that I couldn't create as a photojournalist and realize I wanted to be more of an illustrative, storytelling, conceptual photographer. So as you were making those transitions, were you actively going out and making work on your own that were along the lines of what you envisioned you wanted to do? Or did you sort of try and sort of squeeze some of those kinds of images into to the paper? Uh, oh, no, I, I had to leave the paper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had to leave the paper to do that. There's the, you know, the, the paper is, was really photojournalistic. And not only was it photojournalistic, it was a Murdoch tabloid. It was owned by Murdoch at the time. I think he gave it up eventually to own the television station there. But uh, to, to buy, you know, this is in the time when he was buying all the Fox stations to create Fox and to have to own the local affiliates and, and, and really create a Fox network. So he had a bigger plan and had to give up the newspaper because you're supposed to, the, F, the FCC uh, uh, prohibited you at the time, I don't know what the regulation is, but from owning a newspaper and a television station in the same town because they didn't want you to monopolize the, the opinion and, you know, the, the, the popular opinion. So um, it was a tabloid and I couldn't do any of that there. I... I had shot a couple of weddings as a as a part of the press pack. It wasn't paparazzi. We were invited. But I had shot a couple of weddings, the, the Maria Shriver wedding and the Carolyn Kennedy wedding. And I basically beat the famous who's now passed away. And, and, and he was, I worked with him, loved working with him. He was a great guy. Ken Reagan. In fact, both of them passed away. Mike Fuller and Ken Reagan from what was then camera five and people magazine had hired Ken and Mike to shoot the wedding. And in both cases, I got pictures that neither of them got that people had to buy from me. And Beth Filler, who was the deputy picture editor at people magazine said at the time, if you ever leave the paper, I will make you a regular at People Magazine. You will work for me every week, and I'll give you enough to make a living. That was it. I packed up my bags and, like the Beverly Hillbillies, moved to Beverly. I mean, it was <laughs> like, get me, get me out of here and get me out of the weather of Boston and get me out of working for a paper. And I was still doing photojournalism, but it gave me a, a number of years to, tr to sort of transcend that and it gave me a number of years to transcend that 
you know, focus on magazine work. And then from there, I worked on transitioning into a more creative, art-directed, storytelling type of portrait. Was there a particular shoot or a set of photographs that you felt like when you were making that transition where you felt like, this is it, this is really what I want to be? what I've been striving to achieve and, and do with my photography. Do, do you have like a, a quintessential moment where you felt like that? Happened? Yeah. Yeah. I was asked to do, yeah, there was a turning point in the early nineties for my career where I was asked to do, um, I, I did it. I, I pitched a story on jewelry for the Los Angeles times Sunday magazine back when the Los Angeles times Sunday magazine was something, you know, now there's hardly any Sunday magazines left and they're thin and they're, they're, there's not much advertising in them and they have no budgets. And, but I, I pitched a story for the Los Angeles Times Sunday magazine on jewelry and I did these coolly lit wild jewelry pictures where I made a necklace, a pendant or a mandala on the model's head. And I wrapped a, a, a model in her hair and then had the necklace over the hair and you didn't see her face and, and did these kind of wild pictures. And I created a look. I actually took a mat box on my Hasselblad and I actually put tape on it. And so I black vignetted the edge and we copper toned the prints and we created this look that was this pretty great look. And, you know, the pictures were a hit. I, when I sent my portfolio out, those pictures were in it. And Business Week then hired me to travel the world to do 12 portraits for a special issue. And we didn't copper tone them, but I got to do them in that style. And it was this moment where basically I was entrusted I was entrusted to make a picture that I created. I literally got to create a dramatic portrait and as artistically as I wanted. They were very dramatically lit black and white images. They're, they were often lit with one light, you know, and we shot really important people and I used the lights to make shadows and, you know, I flew to England to do Richard Branson and uh, Anita Roddick of The Body Shop. I just, I was given a lot of freedom and often I would take a little seed of an idea like this person makes sneakers. So I'm going to make the, with a piece of metal with holes in it, I'm going to project the circles of the sneakers onto the wall. And you know, they became very abstract and that really, those pictures were so dramatic and made such a powerful statement that that got me a lot of that very artistic black and white work in in the 90s. It really, people latched onto that. And then, and then sort of magazines became less arty and less um, – they tried to be more commercialized and went for brighter color photos and, and uh, sort of the trend changed from what I was doing. But for a while – people really latched on to what I was doing. Yeah. That, that whole, that whole story speaks to the idea of, of work that's sort of self-assigned, you know, the, the personal, the personal project or, or things that are, you know, come from the imagination of the photographer rather than being an assignment that comes from some art director or some. Well, it's an desk. assignment. It's just, you realize that people are hiring you to create something and not just document something. I mean, that's the thing. Like I can't go as a photojournalist. I can't walk into an environment and start like bringing props and, and, 
creating something that wasn't there or put someone on a set or, you know, that, that kind of journalism is relegated to sort of magazines where the, the magazine takes the leap of faith that the photograph is illustrative, but daily newspapers don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I was referring back to the, uh, the, the pitch that you had made to Los Angeles magazine that ended up propelling that whole, that whole assignment. And, and because I, I think that, uh, there, I've had so many conversations with photographers and it's often been the, the things that they have sort of come up with on their own that oftentimes leads to opportunities where, where they're doing editorial or commercial work for, uh, for others. It's somehow that them coming up with the initial inspiration, the idea or the concept really sparks the imagination of the people who, who do the hiring. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the real irony of all of this is that there's so many photographers and there's so many and, – and the magazine world, the editorial world is doing so poorly that they don't even – no one gets sparked anymore. People have the attitude of submit it if we like it. You're com- competing with 30 other people who are doing a full-on fashion shoot because there's, they're either students or they're trying to break into the fashion world. They're either doing a full-on fashion shoot or they're doing like Treats magazine where where it's a glamour, you know, naked girls thing. But the photographers submit that stuff. I mean, the magazines have it made. They don't, they don't get sparked until they see it these days. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's paying for anything anymore, which is a shame. And, and a lot of photographers think that, oh, I'll just – I'll do this and I'll get seen. And, you know, the chances are you won't. Chances are you're, you're competing. They have four spots in the magazine. They get 20 submissions of people shooting it on their own and paying for it every, every month. And your chances are one in five. Um, so it, it's, it's not that. So how do you contend with that reality? Because people go, oh, wow, he has a reputation. He has books. He's won awards. He's you know, been profiled so many where you know, you're not eliminated from that, the, the whole challenge of, of, of competition, especially with these you know, up-and-coming photographers who, as you said, are willing to work for, for free. So what, you know, what kind of environment does that lead you to, to have to work in? And, and what choices do you have to make to keep you know, being able to go out there and do the kind of work that you love to do. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's not one choice. It's many, many, many choices. It's, you're trying to keep on track. You're trying to keep the images that you put out there on brand. You're out there all the time to, you're out there all the time to really, Get work, show your work, show people what you've been doing. You're out there, you know, part of being a photographer is being a salesperson to some extent. So, you know, you're, you're just working hard at getting the work. And then I, my attitude is, is I, you know, I'm not going to spend three or $4,000 to shoot a spec fashion shoot and hopefully get someone to use it. I rather do bigger projects. I rather do, uh, a documentary film and a book. I rather do something that propels my career further than showing up in four pages or five pages in a magazine. So that someone, people might not have looked at. I don't like, I don't need to get published anymore. If I pick up a project to keep myself stimulated or thinks a project's cool or whatever, I'll do that as my own project. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. That makes sense. But I think that the there are certain clients that come back to you because they like working with you. 
you know, they have the experience under their belt. They know the kind of images that you, you, you deliver. But I think there's, there's always concern that you can't always just be satisfied with the people that you're working with currently because there's no guarantee that they're going to be around later. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, the question of every photographer is really is what do you, what do you, what are the choices that you make in order to ensure that you have new and potential clients potentially in the, in the future in order to be able to sort of sustain it? Um, all of this has to be based on great work, right? <laughs> I mean, the first choice is, is to take great pictures, to work hard, be creative, put everything you can into it, and always kill it. Uh, I mean, that's the first choice. You got to always kill it. You can't walk into your job bored or, or have not being prepared or not trying to kill it. Like I walk in and I give my clients more than expected every time. Like, you know, I take the pig's ear and make a purse out of it. Like I will go to the extent and totally kill it, you know, totally kill it and, um, and, and make sure that I, the job was so successful that it gay gives me pictures for my portfolio and B bonds me with that client. So that's number one. Um, number two, you know, your choices, you, you've got to strategically market, you've got to be out there, you've got to take those images and update, you know, websites with them and update your website with them and update any websites that carry your work that you've paid to advertise on. I mean, those are the choices that you need to do. Well, let's talk about the teams that you put, put together, because I think that, uh, you know, your success is as much as the work, as much work that you put into it. Uh, I think the, your success is also a testament to your ability to, be, to put together uh, a group of people uh, together in order to be able to to see your vision through to, to to the end and and talk about that that process of you know choosing those people and how you relate to them because I think a I think a, a challenge for for many people is not just choosing the right people but being able to create an environment where these people are are challenged. Uh, but also excited about being collaborators in a creative process. Um, I first of all, I always treat my teams uh, with the sense of collaboration. Always, positively, absolutely, always. Like that's part of the deal. It's like I treat them with respect. I use a lot of the same people because they're good. I have my own retouching staff. I use a particular stylist because I know they're very creative, you know, and I'm always trying to work with the best people. I'm not one of those people that needs to be the smartest one in the room. I'm smart, but if someone comes up with a good idea, I'm not poo-pooing it because I, 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 it has to be my idea or, the, you know, and, and that starts the collaboration, that willingness to that willingness to collaborate and be open to hearing and seeing how something would work starts the collaboration. And it doesn't just stop with my team. It's, it, it continues with the creatives I'm working with. Love working with a good creative. I love working with someone who has a vision. You know, I, it's the worst is f to have a client and they not know what they want. Oh yeah, and they want to see it twelve different ways, and they can't see the difference between the two of them, and they can't make up their mind. And you, you'll be doing that job all day. So I mean, you'll be doing that job all day if if that's what you you know, and and you'll never get anywhere because the client can't make up their mind. 
you know, I've just done this so long that I'm, I'm decisive. I know what I want. I'm, I'm able to propel stuff forward because of that. So one of the things that you've been venturing into is, is filmmaking and you had your film Naked Ambition that you, uh, that you put out several years back. Tell me about the, the concept for, for that film and what were some of the challenges from, you know, being used to producing still images into actually making a, a feature? Well, it, it didn't turn out to be a feature to begin with. It, we thought we were doing some little bit of behind-the-scenes footage, and the interviews were so candid and so great that it became a feature film. Um, Warner Brothers released it in 2009, and it's been doing pretty well worldwide ever since. So it, for us, I mean, the, made, the first challenge was getting the financing and getting the money. You know, I, I went to the Adult Video Awards in 2002. I thought it was, you know, really sort of a freak show wrapped up in the Oscars, uh, which made it kind of made it a dichotomy and made it interesting. It was like a Fellini movie. A and then um, I had a pitch and I had a proposal, but it took years to get you know, sponsorship. It took a long time. So we approached even the book like funding a film. And and we approached them in the same approach and, and both got funded and dealt with in the same way. We both got funded. Like we were able to get additional funding to complete the film afterwards, but the book even had funding and had sponsorship and I dealt with it. You know, I dealt with it in that in that way and the book was very successful as far as getting a sponsorship to to cover the expense and cover the shoot and how about just the sort of the mindset that you had to have because when you're making a still photograph that involves something completely different where then when you're out there filming all this footage and having sort of an edit in mind to have a sort of a narrative flow to... Well, that, to that's the, the thing with a documentary. You don't know where, where it's going to go. I mean, I was part of a three-person team, and, and I have a film partner, Charles Holland, who's a, who's a renowned television drama writer. Um, he, was a, he was the showrunner on the show Soul Food for, for Showtime, and... He, the showrunner on JAG, and he's he was a president of the Writers Guild, and he was one partner. And then I had a, another partner who was my old photojournalism teacher. And they, because I was shooting the book, they did most of the filming. So, and we didn't know what we would get. And finally, Charles and I had creative differences with my old photojournalism teacher, and we took over the film. And then I became the director of it sort of, you know, post being shot. And, and I had to figure out afterwards, which, which often documentary directors, you have an idea, but then that isn't what you get. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there are stories you can tell that you know what the outcome is going to be because it's toxic waste and you're this and you're, and it's an investigative story and you don't really know all of the outcome, but you pretty know much know, want to know what's going to happen. You walk into an award show and you pick three girls to follow. You don't know if they're going to win. You don't know what the real story is going to be until you're there and you interview them. So we had a look at 40 hours of footage, essentially. And from that 40 hours of footage, figure out how to create a story. You know, and I'm the overriding arch of everything. It's me there making a book. And you follow me through all of this. And then from there, 
you follow the two girls, the good girl and the bad girl, who are up for Best New Starlet. And I won't tell you if they win or not because I don't want to be a spoiler. So, you know, it's the the directing it almost came afterwards in, you know, it literally came afterwards because I, I took over the film. But at the same time, like I think any documentary director, we had to figure out and calculate what what we were going to do and how the story would unfold and be told. So, um, you know, but I, I, now I direct a lot of spots. We just did a number of spots for pizza hut. I direct a lot of spots and I web spots a lot. I've done a couple of, uh, you know, in, in internal industrials and, um, I, I like the dramatic directing much more. I've, I've just found from being a photographer that I'm a great director. I'm a really good director. I'm able to tell talent what I need, you know, the same way. And, and it's a different ear. I mean, the same way you can tell someone how to pose, you use your intuition and say, you know what? I don't like the way you read that. Or can you answer the question again? Or, you know, or someone's reading a script and you ask for another delivery or, you know, you, you say, cause it, you'll do the same thing in stills. Picture you're in a meadow or, or picture, you know, I, I did something uh, for Pizza Hut with a country uh, music star on a launch of some pizzas. And <laughs> really, I'm under an NDA, so that's all I'm going to say. It's out already. But, you know, I set up his reading of the script. I'm like, think you're on Saturday Night Live and you're reading a poem. And the poem's got, like, you put people in that frame of mind to read it and you make them successful with good direction, it's the same thing as getting the right expression on a still shoot. I mean, it's the same thing. Although you're capturing that moment in one frame as opposed to, you know, someone reading to a motion camera. Yeah. Well, you're known for your, your technical abilities in terms of lighting, but let, let's talk about your adoption of, of a video, particularly, you know, uh, the 4K um, you know, this higher resolution video that now is becoming increasing available to, to not only high end professional photographers, but, but consumers. Tell me about, um, how you are finding that as a, an additional tool in your, in your repertoire. Well, I think it's great. You know, I joined the, I joined the Panasonic Lumex team and I've been working with, um, the GH4, which I love. I love being able to shoot 4K video. I mean, it, 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 ha- taking that leap. As a client, uh, for my clients, like I'm on the phone with creatives, creative directors, broadcast production side. You know, it's great that a still photographer is, or and still photographers in general are now being asked to fill in the 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 web spots. Like the TV commercial production companies don't want to do the non-million dollar commercial, half a million dollar commercial. They want to do the big commercial and they don't want to touch the web spots. So that stuff gets added to my still shoot and I'm on the conversation with the broadcast department and their editorial team, meaning the people who edit the film. And I'm, I suggest 4K and they're like, I said, they're like, why? I said, because we have a limited amount of time. I have a limited amount of time. We only have so many takes with talent and you can get two shots out of it. You can, you can cut, you know, this last shoot we did, we did two cameras and you can cut from camera to camera and you can 
jump in close. Even though these are airing on the web, you're able to jump in close and get two shots out of it. So every time I do a take, you potentially have another set of shots that are completely different. They're close-ups. Like, oh, that's a great idea, you know. And, you know, and it's like, you, you know, the ha- we talk about the handheld camera. If you don't like it, you can do motion stabilization on the 4K because you have extra, extra image around. It's like it gives you a lot of versatility, even if it's not going to be shown in 4K. And offering that sophistication to a client, clients love it. They love it, you know. And, and the f- Shooting 4K demands that we, you know, we were talking about the the SanDisk, uh, the SD, the U3s, the very high speed, uh, 30 megs a second card. Um, that's that's sort of what you're you need to do to get that high end video footage, you know, out of the camera when it's handheld and you're shooting to card. How, how does how does your experience of lighting still? How has that helped you when it comes to recording video? Because there you're, you're dealing you know, with camera movement. You're dealing with subject movement. And it's not, it's not a fixed subject or a fixed spot to, to make your photographs. How have you been able to sort of translate all that you've learned aesthetically about lighting when it comes to, to video? Well, keep in mind that, that I learned my lighting on film sets. When I moved here... I was a regular for People magazine, but with my newspaper experience, I was a regular unit photographer shooting on movie sets for HBO and CBS. A regular. So I was always on film sets, shooting stills, shooting stills, and seeing how the DPs and all of those people lit, lit the scene. You know, I, I was, and I was fascinated. I came from Boston as a photojournalist. I knew how to use lights because I, I still did a lot of the lit. I did some of the food shots and things like that. I did a lot of the lit stuff. And I really, really, really loved watching these guys work. Like I just uh, loved working, watching them work. And that is how I learned my still lighting. Now, the only difference is, is as you say, you in, in you can't contain the light if someone's traveling through a shot, but it's still, I still have tools to light in a dramatic way. I still have tools to light the way I want. You know, you can, you can light in pools of light and the talent can walk into the pool of light. You can light from a very high angle and it's not as critical as in a still where you have to see some white in the eye and you can't have dead eyes when you light from a, from a high angle. You actually have a little more latitude in motion to where the lighting could be a little more not as refined because someone's moving around, things like that. So, but, but I learned on sets and I have the tools and tricks to translate what I do in still in motion very, very easily. I mean, Again, keep in mind that you you know everyone knows how I light. Primarily, it's very tight, it's very dramatic, it's from a it, it odd angle. Not when I'm shooting eight people, though, or not when I'm shooting a comic that tends to move around and do a lot of things with their body. To light a comic with a three degree spotlight on their face and and have them not move around would would ruin everything they do 
and stifle everything they do. So for me, I've always had some flexibility in what I do and how I do it. Well, one of the things that you've mentioned with with your lighting is that you're you're a photographer who who doesn't like to adhere to rigid rules about lighting. And when you wrote your 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 last book on lighting, you were encouraging people to sort of know the rules, but to break the rules and to think to think about what they wanted to express in their lighting and in their in their photographs. Could you speak to that, especially with how that approach has helped you in terms of what you're doing with, with video? Um, that I never come at it with a formula. Like when people come to my lighting seminars and things like that, that I, I always approach these ideas from a fresh perspective. I always, I, I there's no one formula. It, this is all problem solving. So when I light... I don't light with the idea that I always do something one way and this is the way I do it. And, you know, I tell people and if I do a lighting seminar, I just did a big F-stoppers uh, week-long workshop in the Bahamas with, the, with fstoppers.com. And, and there, I, I always say there's no magic pill. I have no magic pill. I don't do one thing the same way all the time. What I'm doing is trying to elicit this a similar look and a similar emotional effect. But I'm not, I don't do that with one light, always placed the same and always done the same way. Just that isn't what I do. There's some photographers. I have a friend, Peter Hurley, who's a brilliant headshot photographer. He's got his formula down, right? And that's his formula and that's fine. But I don't tend to do things in that way. And I don't tend, I tend to, to know what I want as the end result and have a million different ways to get there. And that's why I tell people break the rules because push yourself, push yourself outside that box. I, I was watching a clip, I think F stoppers put up a, a week or two ago from that, from that shoot where you were photographing a model on the beach and uh, one of the things I picked up on it is that uh, you just didn't just plant the light there and then forget about it. You were constantly observing how the light played off with your subject, what it was doing on the, you know, on on, on the ground. You were you were still paying good attention to your to your model and trying to still elicit something from her, but you were also had part of your brain really focused on what the light was and wasn't doing, and, and it was. Uh, a real sort of organic process. And I think a lot of people forget that they constantly have to be aware of, of the subject of the lighting of the foreground of what the camera is doing. They have to be juggling all these things simultaneously and, and can't do one thing to the exclusion of the other. Well, keep in mind, especially if you're lighting with grid spots and tight sources like I do. You know, I, I use a, a lot. I used to use a lot of metal grid spots and it was very harsh and I didn't shoot a lot of actresses because of it because the light was harsh and my style was very harsh and it wasn't very Hollywood or pleasing. You know, and I moved to Chimera soft boxes, small ones, like the, an extra small or a small strip with a grid in it, with these egg crate, with these light tools, makes them for Chimera with these egg crate fabric grids in them. And so I'm lighting still in small pools of light. So when you do that, you have to pay particular attention to, A, the light's in the right place. I think when you watch that video and some of the shots at the beginning, the light's not in the right place. 
right? right. So you, you have to pay particular attention to the light and the light being in the right place. You also have to look at what's changing. If the wind changes, if the, if the light goes down, if the, you know, the clouds come over and everything goes too dark on the ground, like that's your responsibility as a photographer. You're, 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 you know, that just comes from experience. So in the past, we'd either shoot a lot of Polaroids. Now we try to shoot tethered as much as possible. Shooting tethered is our, is our way around that. Shooting tethered gives me the ability to see what I'm doing, right? And that's what it's about for me. I wanna, that, that's what I tell people it's the magic pill. Everyone says, what's the magic pill? And the magic pill for me is to keep looking. There's no magic pill of what light to use and where to place it and, and what to do with it. The magic pill is to always keep looking. Look at what you're getting. Is it working? And if it's not working, change it. Uh, well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about the, the new site that, and the video content that you're providing, How to Archive. Why don't you tell us a, a little bit about that? Well, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm always one to figure out how to do things better. And I love problem solving. You know, that's the big part that comes with the job. So is problem solving. And I realize I have a tremendous amount of knowledge and insight from doing this for so long and problem solving. I want to do things the quickest, most efficient, the most cost effective way possible. So I've launched a site called howtoarchive.com. And howtoarchive.com is a teaching site of tips and tricks and um, tips and tricks and things like that, that, that help photographers. We've shot already six videos. We're going to put them up once every two weeks and they will be an accompanying blog article. So the first one is how to store images. And I talk about the cloud versus how I store, I store, on, on what's called cold storage. I store on a hard drive that I actually keep in a file cabinet and the hard drive's offline. So I store in a way that's economic, is the most economical way and in a way the most protective way to store. It's definitely the cheapest and the most efficient. So I, I talk about that on howtoarchive.com. Then we have one about how I file name and why. Then we have a video on the strategic use of SSD drives. I use the SanDisk uh, SSD uh, two and a half inch hard drives in my towers and in my computers for speed and for different reasons. So I have one on my email, how I set up my email system. So I, I'm going through a bunch of business strategies and things I do on the back end that may, that'll make every photographer and videographer's life easier and cheaper. My, my archiving strategy um, will save a photographer a fortune in time and everything else. You know, it, it, it comes down to me wanting to give back and you know, knowing I, I've spent a lot of brain power and time trying to figure this stuff out and I have the knowledge to be able to give to people. So the website's 
howtoarchive.com. And there's a product that I, I help support called getprostorage.com. The product's called ProStorage. The, the, and the ProStorage product is the, the anti-static foam to be able to archive these hard drives. So you need to put them in special containers. Oh, okay. So, you know, all of that is, all of this is, uh, you know, part of me, you know, looking at building my brand and helping people and expanding my, my footprint to the people I'm able to communicate to. Well, the last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I couldn't do one. I'd have to do two and they'd be Avedon and Helmut Newton. So, you know, Avedon, they, they both broke ground in different ways and, and, uh, Avedon broke a lot of his ground in the studio and with the way he lit and the fact that he didn't make people look good in the fashionable fifties and sixties that his, his portraits, uh, actually went super tight into someone's flaw or wrinkle or whatever. And Helmut Newton for the way he broke ground and made his fashion photography so personal and so, you know, strangely in, in, in a way only he can do, you know, erotic. And, and I, I think those would be my two faves. And where can people go to find out more about you and, and all the things that you're doing? Well, the, the, the teaching site is howtoarchive.com. Um, the product is get on getprostorage.com. And my photography is on michaelgreco.com. So that's where I keep my portfolio for clients to look at and see the work. And there's bios there. There's my exhibit history, all of that stuff. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed having the chance. Oh, so happy. uh, So happy uh, to do it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.